Book Fourth, Chapter Three of The Wings of the Dove. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. The Wings of the Dove by Henry James. Book Fourth, Chapter Three. She certainly made up with Susie directly, however, for any allowance she might have had privately to extend the tepid appreciation, since the late and long talks of these two embraced not only everything offered and suggested by the hours they spent apart, but a good deal more besides. She might be as detached as the occasion required at four o'clock in the afternoon but she used no such freedom to anyone about anything as she habitually used about everything to Susan Shepherd at midnight. All the same, it should with much less delay than this have been mentioned, she hadn't yet, hadn't, that is, at the end of six days produced any news for her comrade to compare with an announcement made her by the latter as a result of a drive with Mrs. Loder for a change in the remarkable Battersea Park. The elder friends had sociably revolved there while the younger ones followed bolder fancies in the admirable equipage appointed to Milly at the hotel, a heavier, more emblazoned, more amusing chariot than she had ever, with stables notoriously mismanaged, known at home, whereby, in the course of the circuit, more than once repeated. It had come out as Mrs. Stringham said, that the couple at Lancaster Gate were, of all people, acquainted with Mildred's other English friend, the gentleman, the one connected with the English newspaper. Susie hung fire a little over his name, who had been with her in New York so shortly previous to present adventures. He had been named, of course, in Battersea Park, else he couldn't have been identified and Susie had naturally, before she could produce her own share in the matter, as a kind of confession, to make it plain that her allusion was to Mr. Merton Densher. This was because Milly had at first a little air of not knowing whom she meant, and the girl really kept as well a certain control of herself, while she remarked that the case was surprising, the chance one in a thousand. They knew him, both Maud and Miss Croy knew him, she gathered too rather well, though indeed it wasn't on any show of intimacy that he had happened to be mentioned. It hadn't been, Susie made the point, she herself who brought him in. He had in fact not been brought in at all, but only referred to as a young journalist known to Mrs. Loder, and who had lately gone to their wonderful country. Mrs. Loder always said, Your wonderful country, on behalf of his journal. But Mrs. Stringham had taken it up, with the tips of her fingers indeed, and that was the confession. She had without meaning any harm recognized Mr. Densher as an acquaintance of Milly's, though she had also pulled herself up before getting in too far. Mrs. Loder had been struck clearly. It wasn't too much to say. Then she also, it had rather seemed, had pulled herself up, and there had been a little moment during which each might have been keeping something from the other. Only, said Milly's informant, I luckily remembered in time that I had nothing whatever to keep, 
which was much simpler and nicer. I don't know what Maud has, but there it is. She was interested distinctly in your knowing him, in his having met you over there, with so little loss of time. But I venture to tell her it hadn't been so long as to make you as yet great friends. I don't know if I was right. Whatever time this explanation might have taken, there had been moments enough in the matter now, before the elder woman's conscience had done itself justice, to enable Milly to reply that although the fact in question doubtless had its importance, she imagined they wouldn't find the importance overwhelming. It was odd that their one Englishman should so instantly fit. It wasn't, however, miraculous. They surely all had often seen how extraordinarily small, as everyone said, was the world. Undoubtedly also Susie had done just the plain thing in not letting his name pass. Why in the world should there be a mystery? And what an immense one they would appear to have made if he should come back and find they had concealed their knowledge of him. I don't know, Susie dear, the girl observed, what you think I have to conceal. It doesn't matter at a given moment, Mrs. Stringham returned, what you know or don't know as to what I think, for you always find out the very next minute, and when you do find out, dearest, you never really care. Only, she presently asked, have you heard of him from Miss Croy? Heard of Mr. Densher? Never a word. We haven't mentioned him. Why should we? That you haven't, I understand, but that your friend hasn't, Susie opined, may mean something. May mean what? Well, Mrs. Stringham presently brought out, I tell you all when I tell you that Maud asks me to suggest to you that it may perhaps be better for the present not to speak of him, not to speak of him to her niece, that is, unless she herself speaks to you first. But Maud thinks she won't. Milly was ready to engage for anything, but in respect to the facts, as they so far possessed them, it all sounded a little complicated. Is it because there's anything between them? No, I gather not, but Maud's state of mind is precautionary. She's afraid of something, or perhaps it would be more correct to say she's afraid of everything. She's afraid, you mean, Milly asked, of their a-liking each other? Susie had an intense thought and then an effusion. My dear child, we move in a labyrinth. Of course we do. That's just the fun of it, said Milly, with a strange gaiety. Then she added, Don't tell me that. In this, for instance, there are not abysses. I want abysses. Her friend looked at her. It was not unfrequently the case, a little harder than the surface of the occasion seemed to require. And another person present at such times might have wondered to what inner thought of her own the good lady was trying to fit the speech. It was too much her disposition, no doubt, to treat her young companion's words as symptoms of an imputed malady. It was none the less, however, her highest law to be light when the girl was light. She knew how to be quaint with a new quaintness, the great Boston gift. It had been happily her note in the magazines, 
and Maud Loder, to whom it was new indeed, and who had never heard anything remotely like it, quite cherished her as a social resource, by reason of it. It shouldn't therefore fail her now. With it, in fact, one might face most things. And then let us hope we shall sound the depth. I'm prepared for the worst of sorrow and sin. But she would like her niece, we're not ignorant of that, are we, to marry Lord Mark? Hasn't she told you so? Hasn't Mrs. Loder told me? No, hasn't Kate? It isn't you know that she doesn't know it. Milly had under her comrade's eyes a minute of mute detachment. She had lived with Kate Croy for several days in a state of intimacy as deep as it had been sudden, and they had clearly in talk in many directions proceeded to various extremities. Yet it now came over her as in a clear cold wave that there was a possible account of their relations, in which the quantity her new friend had told her might have figured as small, as smallest, beside the quantity she hadn't. She couldn't say at any rate whether or no Kate had made the point that her aunt designed her for Lord Mark. It had only sufficiently come out, which had been, moreover, eminently guessable, that she was involved in her aunt's designs. Somehow, for Milly, brush it over nervously as she might, and with whatever simplifying hand, this abrupt extrusion of Mr. Densher altered all the proportions, had an effect on all values. It was fantastic of her to let it make a difference that she couldn't in the least have defined, and she was at least, even during these instants, rather proud of being able to hide on the spot the difference it did make. Yet all the same the effect for her was, almost violently, of that gentleman's having been there, having been where she had stood till now in her simplicity, before her. It would have taken but another free moment to make her see the abysses, since abysses were what she wanted, in the mere circumstance of his own silence, in New York, about his English friends. There had really been in New York little time for anything, but, had she liked, Milly could have made it out for herself that he had avoided the subject of Miss Croy, and that Miss Croy was yet a subject it could never be natural to avoid. It was to be added at the same time that even if his silence had been a labyrinth, which was absurd in view of all the other things too he couldn't possibly have spoken of, this was exactly what must suit her since it fell under the head of the plea she had just uttered to Susie. These things, however, came and went, and it set itself up between the companions for the occasion, in the oddest way, both that their happening all to know Mr. Densher, except indeed that Susie didn't, but probably would, was a fact attached in a world of rushing about to one of the common orders of chance, and yet further that it was amusing, oh, awfully amusing, to be able fondly to hope that there was something in its having been left to crop up with such suddenness. There seemed somehow a possibility that the ground, or, as it were, the air might in a manner have undergone some pleasing preparation, though the question of this possibility would probably, after all, have taken some threshing out. The truth, moreover, 
and there they were already, our pair, talking about it, the truth hadn't in fact quite cropped out, this obviously in view of Mrs. Loder's request to her old friend. It was accordingly on Mrs. Loder's recommendation that nothing should be said to Kate. It was on all this might cover in Aunt Maud that the idea of an interesting complication could best hope to perch, and when in fact, after the colloquy we have reported, Milly saw Kate again without mentioning any name, her silence succeeded in passing muster with her as the beginning of a new sort of fun. The sort was all the newer by its containing measurably a small element of anxiety. When she had gone in for fun before, it had been with her hands a little more free. Yet it was nonetheless rather exciting to be conscious of a still sharper reason for interest in the handsome girl as Kate continued even now pre-eminently to remain for her, and a reason, this was the great point, of which the young woman herself could have no suspicion. Twice over thus, for two or three hours together, Milly found herself seeing Kate quite fixing her, in the light of the knowledge that it was a face on which Mr. Densher's eyes had more or less familiarly rested, and which, by the same token, had looked rather more beautiful than less into his own she pulled herself up indeed with the thought that it had inevitably looked as beautifully as one would into a thousands of faces in which one might oneself never trace it but just the odd result of the thought was to intensify for the girl that side of her friend which she had doubtless already been more prepared than she quite knew to think of as the other the not fully calculable. It was fantastic, and Milly was aware of this, but the other side was what had of a sudden been turned straight toward her by the show of Mr. Densher's propinquity. She hadn't the excuse of knowing it for Kate's own, since nothing whatever as yet proved it particularly to be such. Never mind, it was with this other side now fully presented that Kate came and went, kissed her for greeting and for parting, talked as usual of everything but, as it had so abruptly become for Milly, the thing. Our young woman, it is true, would doubtless not have tasted so sharply a difference in this pair of occasions, hadn't she been tasting so peculiarly her own possible betrayals. What happened was that afterwards, on separation, she wondered if the matter hadn't mainly been that she herself was so other, so taken up with the unspoken. The strangest thing of all being, still subsequently, that when she asked herself how Kate could have failed to feel it, she became conscious of being here on the edge of a great darkness. She should never know how Kate truly felt about anything such a one as Milly Thiel should give her to feel. Kate would never, and not from ill-will nor from duplicity, but from a sort of failure of common terms, reduce it to such a one's comprehension or put it within her convenience. It was a such a one, therefore, that for three or four days more Milly watched Kate as judge such another, and it was presently as such a one that she threw herself into their promised visit, at last achieved, to Chelsea the quarter of the famous Carlyle, the field of exercise of his ghost, 
his votaries, and the residence of poor Marianne, so often referred to, and actually a somewhat incongruous spirit there. With our young woman's first view of poor Marianne, everything gave way but the sense of how in England, apparently, the social situation of sisters could be opposed, how common ground for a place in the world could quite fail them a state of things sagely perceived to be involved in an hierarchical and aristocratic order just a whereabouts in the order mrs lowder had established her niece was a question not fully void as yet no doubt of ambiguity though milly was withal sure lord mark could exactly have fixed the point if he would fixing it at the same time for aunt maud herself but it was clear mrs condrip was, as might have been said, in quite another geography. She wouldn't have been to be found on the same social map, and it was as if her visitor had turned over page after page together before the final relief of their benevolent hair. The interval was bridged, of course, but the bridge verily was needed, and the impression left Milly to wonder if, in the general connection, it were of bridges or of intervals that the spirit not locally disciplined would find itself most conscious. It was as if at home, by contrast, there were neither, neither the difference itself from position to position, nor on either side, and particularly on one, the awfully good manner, the conscious sinking of a consciousness that made up for it. The conscious sinking, at all events, and the awfully good manner, the difference, the bridge, the interval, the skipped leaves of the social atlas, these, it was to be confessed, had a little for our young lady, in default to stouter stuff, to work themselves into the light literary legend, a mixed wandering echo of Trollope, of Thackeray, perhaps mostly of Dickens, under favour of which her pilgrimage had so much appealed. She could relate to Susie later on, late the same evening, that the legend before she had done with it had run clear that the adored author of the newcomes, in fine, had been on the whole the note, the picture lacking thus more than she had hoped, or rather perhaps showing less than she had feared, a certain possibility of Pickwickian outline. She explained how she meant by this that, Mrs. Condrip hadn't altogether proved another Mrs. Nickleby, nor even, for she might have proved almost anything, from the way poor worried Kate had spoken, a widowed and aggravated Mrs. Mia Cobber. Mrs. Stringham, in the midnight conference, intimated rather yearningly that, however the event might have turned, the side of English life such experiences opened to Millie's were just those she herself seemed booked as they were all round about her now, always saying to Miss, she had begun to have a little for her fellow observer, these moments of fanciful reaction, reaction in which she was once more all Susan Shepherd against the high sphere of colder conventions into which her overwhelming connection with Maud Manningham had wrapped her. Milly never lost sight for long of the Susan Shepherd side of her, and was always there to meet it when it came up, and vaguely, tenderly, impatiently, to pat it, abounding in the assurance that they would still provide for it. They had, however, to-night another matter in hand, which proved to be presently, on the girl's part in respect to her hour of Chelsea, the revelation that Mrs. Condrip, 
taking a few minutes when Kate was away with one of the children in bed upstairs for some small complaint, had suddenly, without its being in the least led up to, broken ground on the subject of Mr. Densher, mentioned him with impatience as a person in love with her sister. She wished me, if I cared for Kate, to know, Milly said, for it would be quite too dreadful, and one might do something. Susie wondered, prevent anything coming of it? That's easily said, do what? Milly had a dim smile. I think that what she would like is that I should come a good deal to see her about it. And doesn't she suppose you've anything else to do? The girl had by this time clearly made it out. Nothing but to admire and make much of her sister, whom she doesn't, however, herself in the least understand, and give up one's time and everything else to it. It struck the elder friend that she spoke with an almost unprecedented approach to sharpness, as if Mrs. Condrip had been rather indescribably disconcerting. Never yet so much as just of late had Mrs. Stringham seen her companion exalted, and by the very play of something within, into a vague golden air that left irritation below. That was the great thing with Milly. It was her characteristic poetry, or at least it was Susan Shepherd's. But she made a point, the former continued, of my keeping what she says from Kate. I'm not to mention that she has spoken. And why, Mrs. Stringham presently asked, is Mr. Densher so dreadful? Milly had, she thought, a delay to answer, something that suggested a fuller talk with Mrs. Condrip than she inclined perhaps to report. It isn't so much he himself. Then the girl spoke a little as for the romance of it. One could never tell with her where romance would come in. It's the state of his fortunes. And is that very bad? He has no private means and no prospect of any. He has no income and no ability, according to Mrs. Condrip, to make one. He is as poor, she calls it, as poverty, and she says she knows what that is. Again Mrs. Stringham considered, and it presently produced something. But isn't he brilliantly clever? Milly had also then an instant that was not quite fruitless. I haven't the least idea. To which for the time Susie only replied, Oh, though by the end of a minute she had followed it with a slightly musing, I see, and that in turn with, It's quite what Maud Loder thinks. That he'll never do anything? No, quite the contrary, that he's exceptionally able. Oh, yes, I know. Milly had again, in reference to what her friend had already told her of this, her little tone of a moment before. But Mrs. Condrip's own great point is that Aunt Maud herself won't hear of any such person. Mr. Densher, she holds, that's the way, at any rate, it was explained to me, won't ever be either a public man or a rich man. If he were public, she'd be willing, as I understand, to help him. If he were rich, without being anything else, she'd do her best to swallow him. As it is, she taboos him. In short, said Mrs. Stringham, as with a private purpose, she told you, the sister, all about it, but Mrs. Loder likes him, she added. Mrs. Condrip didn't tell me that. Well, she does all the same, my dear, extremely. Then, there it is. 
on which with a drop and one of those sudden slightly sighing surrenders to a vague reflux of a general fatigue that had recently more than once marked themselves for her companion, Milly turned away. Yet the matter wasn't left, so that night between them, albeit neither perhaps could afterwards have said which had first come back to it, Milly's own nearest approach at least, for a little to doing so, was to remark that they appeared all, every one they saw, to think tremendously of money. This prompted in Susie a laugh, not untender, the innocent meaning of which was that it came as a subject for indifference. Money did easier to some people than to others. She made the point in fairness, however, that you couldn't have told, by any too crude transparency of air, what place it held for Maud Manningham. She did her worldliness with grand proper silences, if it mightn't better be put perhaps that she did her detachment with grand occasional pushes. However, Susie put it in truth, she was really, in justice to herself, thinking of the difference as favourites of fortune between her old friend and her new. Aunt Maud sat somehow in the midst of her money, founded on it and surrounded by it even if with a masterful high manner about it her manner of looking hard and bright as if it weren't there milly about hers had no manner at all which was possibly from a point of view a fault she was at any rate far away on the edge of it and you hadn't as might be said in order to get at her nature to traverse by whatever avenue any piece of her property it was clear, on the other hand, that Mrs. Loder was keeping her wealth as for purposes, imaginations, ambitions, that would figure as large as honourably unselfish on the day they should take effect. She would impose her will, but her will would be only that a person or two shouldn't lose a benefit by not submitting if they could be made to submit. To Milly, as so much younger, such far views couldn't be imputed. There was nobody she was supposable as interested for. It was too soon, since she wasn't interested for herself. Even the richest woman at her age lacked motive, and Milly's motive doubtless had plenty of time to arrive. She was meanwhile beautiful, simple, sublime without it, whether missing it and vaguely reaching out for it or not, and with it, for that matter, in the event, would really be these things just as much. Only then she might very well have liked Aunt Maud a manner. Such were the connections, at all events, in which the colloquy of our two ladies freshly flickered up, in which it came round that the elder asked the younger if she had herself in the afternoon named Mr. Densher as an acquaintance. "'Oh, no, I said nothing of having seen him, I remembered,' the girl explained. "'Mrs. Loder's wish.' But that, her friend observed after a moment, was for silence to Kate. Yes, but Mrs. Condrip would immediately have told Kate. Why so, since she must dislike to talk about him? Mrs. Condrip must, Milly thought. What she would like most is that her sister should be brought to think ill of him, and if anything she can tell her will help that. But the girl dropped suddenly here as if her companion would see. Her companion's interest, however, was all for what she herself saw. "'You mean she'll immediately speak?' Mrs. Stringham gathered that this was what Milly meant, but it left still a question. "'How will it be against him that you know him?' "'Oh, 
How can I say? It won't be so much one's knowing him as one's having kept it out of sight. Ah, said Mrs. Stringham, as for comfort, you haven't kept it out of sight. Isn't it much rather Miss Croy herself who has? It isn't my acquaintance with him, Milly smiled, that she has dissimulated. She has dissimulated only her own? Well, then the responsibility is hers. Ah, but, said the girl, not perhaps with marked consequence, she has a right to do as she likes. Then, so, my dear, have you, smiled Susan Shepherd. Milly looked at her as if she were almost venerably simple, but also as if this were what one loved her for. We're not quarrelling about it, Kate and I, yet. I only meant, Mrs. Stringham explained, that I don't see what Mrs. Condrip would gain. By her being able to tell Kate, Milly thought, I only meant that I don't see what I myself should gain. But it will have to come out that he knows you both sometime. Milly scarce assented. Do you mean when he comes back? He'll find you both here, and he can hardly be looked to, I take it, to cut either of you for the sake of the other. This placed the question at last on a basis more distinctly cheerful. I might get at him somehow beforehand, the girl suggested. I might give him what they call here the tip, that he's not to know me when he, we meet, or better still, I mightn't be here at all. Do you want to run away from him? It was oddly enough an idea Milly seemed half to accept. I don't know what I want to run away from. It dispelled on the spot something to the elder woman's ear, in the sad, sweet sound of it, any ghost of any need of explaining. The sense was constant for her that their relation might have been afloat, like some island on the south, in a great warm sea that represented, for every conceivable chance, a margin, an outer sphere of general emotion, and the effect of the occurrence of anything in particular was to make the sea submerge the island, the margin flood the text, the great wave now for a moment swept over. I'll go anywhere else in the world you like, but Milly came up through it. Dear old Susie, how I do work you! Oh, this is nothing yet. No, indeed, to what it will be. You're not, and it's vain to pretend, said dear old Susie, who had been taking her in, as sound and strong as I insist on having you. Insist, insist the more the better, but the day I look as sound and strong as that, you know, Milly went on, on that day I shall be just sound and strong enough to take leave of you sweetly for ever. That's where one is, she continued, thus agreeably to embroider, when even one's most bore moments aren't such as to qualify, so far as appearance goes, for anything gayer than a handsome cemetery. Since I've lived all these years as if I were dead, I shall die, no doubt, as if I were alive, which will happen to be as you want me. So, you see, she wound up, you'll never really know where I am, except, indeed, when I'm gone, and then you'll only know where I'm not. I die for you, said Susan Shepherd after a moment. Thanks, awfully. Then stay here for me. 
But we can't be in London for August, nor for many of all these next weeks. Then we'll go back, Susie blenched, back to America? No, abroad, to Switzerland, Italy, anywhere. I mean, by your staying here for me, Milly pursued. You're staying with me wherever I may be, even though we may neither of us know at the time where it is. No, she insisted, I don't know where I am, and you never will, and it doesn't matter, and I dare say it's quite true, she broke off, that everything will have to come out. Her friend would have felt of her that she joked about it now, hadn't her scale from grave to gay been a thing of such unnameable shades that her contrasts were never sharp. She made up for failures of gravity by failures of mirth. If she hadn't, that is, been at times as earnest as might have been like, so she was certain not to be at other times as easy as she would like herself. I must face the music. It isn't at any rate it's coming out, she added. It's that Mrs. Condrip would put the fact before her to his injury. Her companion wondered. But how to his? Why, if he pretends to love her? And does he only pretend? I mean, if trusted by her in strange countries, he forgets her so far as to make up to other people. The amendment, however, brought Suthi in, as with gaiety, for a comfortable end. Did he make up the false creature to you? No, but the question isn't of that. It's of what Kate might be made to believe. That, given the fact of his having evidently more or less followed up his acquaintance with you, to say nothing of your obvious weird charm, he must have been all ready if you had a little bit led him on. Milly neither accepted nor qualified this. She only said after a moment, as with a conscious excess of the pensive, No, I don't think she'd quite wish to suggest that I made up to him for that I should have had to do so would only bring out his constancy, she added, and now at last, as with a supreme impatience, that her being able to make him out a little a person who could give cause for jealousy would evidently help her, since she is afraid of him, to do him in her sister's mind a useful ill turn. Susan Shepherd perceived in this explanation such signs of an appetite for her motive as would have sat gracefully even on one of her own New England heroines. It was seeing round several corners, but that was what New England heroines did, and it was moreover interesting for the moment to make out how many her young friend had actually undertaken to see round. Finally, too, weren't they braving the deeps? They got their amusement where they could. Isn't it only, she asked, rather probable she'd see that Kate's knowing him as, what's the pretty old word, volage? Well, she hadn't filled out her idea, but neither, it seemed, could Milly. Well, might but do what that often does, by all our blessed little laws and arrangements at least, excite Kate's own sentiment instead of depressing it. The idea was bright, yet the girl but beautifully stared. Kate's own sentiment? Oh, she didn't speak of that, I don't think, she added, as if she had been unconsciously giving a wrong impression. I don't think Mrs. Condrip imagines she's in love. It made Mrs. Stringham stare in turn. Then what's her fear? 
well only the fact of mr densher's possibly himself keeping it up the fear of some final result from that oh said susie intellectually a little disconcerted she looks far ahead at this however milly threw off another of her sudden vague sports no it's only we who do well don't let us be more interested for them than they are for themselves certainly not the girl promptly assented a certain interest nevertheless remained she appeared to wish to be clear it wasn't of anything of kate's own part she spoke you mean she thinks her sister distinctly doesn't care for him it was still as if for an instant milly had to be sure of what she meant but there it presently was if she did care mrs condrip would have told me what susan shepherd seemed hereupon for a little to wonder was why then they had been talking so but did you ask her ah no oh said susan shepherd milly however easily explained that she wouldn't have asked her for the world end of book fourth chapter three read by lars rolander